Hello, this is Melissa Hale Spencer, the editor of the Altamont Enterprise, here this morning with Phyllis E. Johnson, who our readers are familiar with because she writes our Helderberg Seniors column and not only gathers hither and yon all kinds of events of interest to people, but starts out with a personal essay that is every week just superb. I met Phyllis in a very unusual way. She was a reader of our paper, and I had done a couple of stories on two elderly sisters who had taken in too many cats into the very small trailer where they lived, and of course were arrested, and the cats were taken away, and they weren't allowed to have any more cats. And Phyllis took it upon herself, not knowing these ladies or me, to come into the newspaper with a box for these two women, and in it were little stuffed cats so that they could have comfort and maybe keep it in their pocket and not miss their cats so much. So welcome, Phyllis. Thank you. <laughs> and I would just like to hear about your life a little bit from the beginning. Where, where did you grow up? Where are you from? Oh, my goodness. Um, I was born in Syracuse, New York, and lived there off and on. Through most of my childhood, I had a couple of stints with an aunt who lived in Auburn at times when my father was ill or my mother was overwhelmed. I moved to the Capital District in the late 70s, I think it was, to take a job with the New York State Coalition for Health and Welfare which was a provider and recipient coalition. So it included groups like Redistribute America, which was a radical welfare rights group, and other organizations like the Council of Catholic Charities Directors, all brought together in the same room to try to agree on policies and tactics for making life better for the poverty community, people who needed some help here and there. And I I moved into an old farmhouse in Duanesburg, mostly because I knew so little about the Capital District. I was looking through the paper for a place I could afford to live and called up and said, well, this sounds lovely. It's only whatever it was, 175 a month. And they said, well, do you know where Dwaynesburg is? And I said, no. Is it towards Boston or Buffalo? Because those were the only two signs I had seen, you know, on, on 90 coming into town. And they said, well, if you can find Western Ave, drive for about 20 miles, and then turn left. <laughs> and that was my first experience living on a farm and having sweet corn growing 20 feet outside my back door and, and having to help when the calves got out. And herding calves is a lot like herding cats. They, they don't know enough yet to be in a herd. All they know is, I'm loose, and I can run, and I can do whatever I want. So they all run in different directions. 
after that, I moved into Albany, but I had fallen in love with the country. And pretty much as, as soon as possible, and, and with one of those Jim Apco County maps, I moved to beautiful downtown South Bern. So you've been there for a long time. That was mm, early 80s. And I was there till 96 when, for some reason, change became possible and I ran away to New Orleans for close to 10 years. And what did you do there? Oh, well, not, not on the list of jobs I gave Just you. Just to let I people had... know, Phyllis has provided me with a typed-out list of what are there, 25 different jobs. Oh, but she least. was very clear that your life is not your job. So we're hearing about the life that weaves together these <laughs> jobs. So New Orleans, what, what happened there? Well, let's see, it, in terms of jobs, um, I worked as the, the token white girl in an employment program, again, for low-income people. Uh, There was job skills training and then placement in jobs. And, of course, this is unofficially. You know, officially, I, I was one of the employment counselors, and my job was to do outreach with employers. Um, given that everybody else in the agency was black and I, and I knew the director, we both knew I was the token white girl and I could be the liaison with the largely white older male business community to arrange for job placements for people in the program. Um, and I did some grants writing for them. When I left that job, I became community relations director for the New Orleans Public Library System, which was just wonderful. I I Because you're a reader. I know that from your columns. Oh, I have I have a button at home that says my idea of heaven is a library with dim sum service. <laughs> you know, just to curl up in a corner and have someone come by periodically with little trays of, of bite-sized Chinese things to eat just sounds that sounds like my idea of heaven. So being paid to be in a library and promote library programs was just absolutely wonderful. Um, At the same time that I was in New Orleans, I also, I had been volunteering with the Red Cross. I had been a Red Cross national disaster volunteer uh, for a number of years and went to work at the Red Cross to help with the latest hurricane, which I think back then was Hurricane Danny. Um, And they were getting ready to have their first statewide Red Cross conference and having, somewhere on that list that you have, um, arranged at least one conference in the past 
and done some, some conference arranging when I worked for the state, I started asking questions like, well, you know, who's in charge of arranging the program and what is your contract with the hotel, you know, in terms of room blocks and things like that. And I got met with these rather quizzical, somewhat blank looks, you know, like contract, um, room blocks. And then I was hired by the Red Cross to run their first ever statewide conference. How did it go? It went very well. Um, it's funny, the thing, the thing I remember most was one of the people we had presenting at the conference was a young woman who had started it's sort of a, a Toys for Tots kind of program and and had done wonderful work and gotten you know thousands of toys and supplies for children but when she arrived at the conference she came with her mother because she was I think 19 and her mother wanted to be reassured that there was someone with her that she would have a chaperone that she wouldn't be left alone at any point because being only 19 she she was a sheltered and naive young girl according to mama and and yes of course i i arranged those things so that the girl and of course especially her mother um <laughs> felt comfortable and and secure but in the back of my mind was thinking 19 and she needs a chaperone because I had been out of high school and on my own since I was 16. So what made you so independent? I think a combination of natural inclination and circumstances. Uh, when I was very little, we lived in the city of Syracuse, and I was allowed to walk as far as the corner, but I wasn't allowed to cross streets yet by myself. And my mother would leave for work in the afternoon because she worked an evening shift. What did she do? Uh, she worked in the semiconductor building of General Electric, because these were the day, the early days of transistors, which used silicon crystals in so the manufacture. So this is like the 1940s. Um, this would have been early 50s. 50s. Okay. So she would leave for work, and then there was about an hour and a half before my father would get home from work. So I would go to the corner. And my mother would give me two bus tokens, and I could take any one of about five buses that went by that corner. And all I had to do was get on the bus and then ride to the end of the line, put my other token in for the return trip, and ride back to our corner. And by the time I got back to our corner, my father would have been oh, what a clever out of childcare <laughs> scheme, <laughs> and that worked beautifully, except for the one time that I went by 
a restaurant that we ate at frequently and decided to get off. And, and went into the restaurant, and they were very nice. And I ordered an ice cream sundae. And I was little enough that the concept of money wasn't terribly well developed in my <laughs> mind. And I think they needed, oh, something like 35 cents for the ice cream sundae, which, of course, I didn't have. I had, I had my little red okay. pocketbook with maybe a couple of pennies and a nickel in it, you know, the, the three pieces of change that you give to the little girl so she has something in, in her, her purse. Yeah. Um, somehow, and I'm not quite sure how, they managed to get a hold of my father, who came and picked me up and explained that getting off the bus halfway through the trip was not the world's best idea. Um, but I was, as I said, that seemed perfectly normal to me. I mean, partly because I was a little kid and partly because then, as now, everything new and different is almost by definition wonderful and exciting. So is this what's made you so peripatetic? I mean, different places, different jobs, different... Yes, and and the belief basically that I, I could do anything. I, it wasn't probably till hmm, preteen teenager that I started picking up any of the contemporary culture, what girls are supposed to do or not. I mean, I was outraged that I wasn't allowed to take shop in school. Oh, because, because this in when those girls days, took girls took home ec, boys took shop. And, and that made no sense to me. And I saw no reason why. I saw no reason why. Um, I have always believed that one person can do pretty much anything they need or want to do and in whatever small way can change the world. Um, I learned that very young. When I was six or maybe seven, I overheard my parents talking. Uh, my father worked as a clerk at City Hall and was quite ill. He had bronchial asthma and emphysema. And I overheard my parents talking and my father saying they were going to transfer him to an old building that the city owned. And how his doctor had said if they transferred him to that building, it would likely kill him because of all of the dust and fumes and everything in the old building. So the next day when I got home from school and I was, I was a latchkey kid before there were latchkey mm. kids. Um, so I looked up the number and I called City Hall. And I said, I'd like to speak to the commissioner, please. 
And the, the operator, the lady who answered the phone, said, Now, do you mean the commissioner of Parks and Recreation, dear? Because most little children... Would be Those that did the call City Hall <laughs> wanted to know when the ice skating rink would open or something like that. And I said, and I'm getting more scared by the minute, of course. And I said, no, I want to talk to Ray Dodge, the commissioner of public works. And I guess because the commissioner didn't get a lot of calls from six-year-old little girls, um, the operator put me right through, and I explained how I had heard my parents talking, and 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 my daddy said if he got transferred to that other building, it would kill him. And I wanted Mr. Dodge to not transfer my daddy, because I didn't want my daddy to die. And he asked me a question that absolutely outraged me. He said, did your daddy tell you to call me? I said, no. If, if my daddy knew I called, he'd, he'd, he'd spank me, which was the worst thing I could think of in my six-year-old brain. And he said he would look into it. He would see what he could do. And a couple of days later, of course, my daddy got home from work and said, Phyllis, <laughs> did you call the commissioner of public works? And now, now I'm really scared. It's like, you know, gulp. Yes, I did. I, I did because I heard you talking and, and I didn't want you to die. And the commissioner didn't transfer him. And that was my first real lesson in community activism, in the power of a single individual to make a difference. And after that, yeah, there, that was the beginning, I guess, in terms of, of social activism, of, of believing, believing in, in the power of the individual to, to make changes in the world. And that's stuck with me ever since. That's just a powerful story. And now I'm looking through this list with new eyes, and I do see a thread here. It has a lot to do with helping people. Alcoholism counselor, uh, crisis counselor, Red Cross disaster. And I know you do now, currently, you do volunteer work with the fire department, right? Is, I, you know? I am a member, a, a proud member of the East Burn Volunteer Fire Company, which is part of the Burn Fire District. And I, I have been elected as one of the Burn Fire District commissioners, along with four other dedicated individuals. Well, tell us about being a volunteer firefighter. Tell, what, what prompted you to do that? And a little about the culture of the, the volunteers. Well, I think joining the fire company was probably one of 
one of the best growth experiences I've ever had. Joining the fire company put me into contact with and friendship with and and interdependence on the fire ground with people that I probably never would have run into yeah, Let otherwise. me just intercede here. Not only is Phyllis a woman, she's a petite woman. And how, how old are you? I'm 69. And she's 69, not the typical volunteer firefighter. So go ahead. <laughs> I just thought people... When I first moved to the town of Bern, uh, I... I wanted to be part of the community. I wanted to do something to help the community. I, if if you're going to move somewhere, then along with the benefits come certain responsibilities, and, and one of that is to contribute to the community. And so I showed up one day, at the Eastburn Firehouse when the rescue squad was meeting and sort of crept in the door and, you know, said, hi, I, I don't really know anything, but, but I'm really interested in helping and, and, and I don't throw up at the sight of blood and I'm fairly good in, in a crisis, you know, in an emergency. Um, what can I help? And they said, sure, come on in. And I became an emergency medical technician and ran with the rescue squad. And the rescue squad, which is now Helderberg Ambulance, a separate organization, always responds when the fire company is called out, regardless of the incident, to not so much to provide medical assistance to the public, but to assure that the firefighters and the first responders are given the oversight and the care they might need in that emergency situation. Firefighters... Firefighters are nuts. I mean, <laughs> if there is an active structure fire, they will keep going in and just changing air packs until the entire fire is knocked down or until they fall down. One of the things that, that you learn if you're responding to an incident where there are firefighters is... If you have to pull somebody off the fire line, you put them in the back of the ambulance and then you take their boots. <laughs> so they can't. If you second. don't take their boots, they will they will slip away on you. They will escape and go right back to fighting the fire. The only way you can keep them from doing that long enough to give them a break and some oxygen and some Gatorade is to take their boots. Uh, and, and I liked doing that. Uh, I, liked, I liked being able to make a difference. I mean, yes, it keeps coming back yeah. to that. Um, probably the two consistent things are 
being able to make a difference for the better and on perhaps the less, less flattering side of that, being a little bit of an adrenaline junkie. Because mm-hmm. um, it is exciting. Uh, even, even when the incident is not a positive one, as, as it isn't for most of the people affected, yes, rushing to the scene is a rush. Uh, I don't, I suspect that that's a trend among first responders. I've, I've seen some psychological studies that, that imply that first responders tend to want to be take charge people and, and set the tone for whatever they're involved in. And I liked being able to be someone that could listen to the people affected by whatever the incident is. I mean, if, if your child is having seizures and, and doesn't stop, somebody needs to put an arm around you and, and say... The crew is doing absolutely everything that can be done for your little girl. And we're taking her to the hospital. You can come along in the back of the ambulance if you want to. And and it's going to be all right as much as we can make it all right. And just to be there for people. And that, I think, in some ways can provide as much help as the actual physical hands-on part of things. So you're talking about the whole psychological part of comfort. Well, I'd also like to hear about how you became a writer, and I should let our listeners know when Phyllis submits her column, I can't wait to read it every week, and it really doesn't need any editing. You know, it comes in straight from the heart and without any grammatical problems or wandering sentences, and I just wonder both how you became a writer and how you write your columns. Well, you have something to do with that. Uh, okay, as background, yes, Spelling and writing always came easily to me. Um, I, I just wrote what sounded right and was fortunate enough that usually that was right. Uh, I've always loved books and words. Uh, words are amazing playthings. You can, you can create worlds with words. And books were always my best friends. No matter what was going on in my life, books were always there for me. They would always do what they said they would do. Uh, I, have, I had written government plans and reports and papers in school and some grants writing, which is sort of persuasive writing, uh, and 
people had told me I was a good writer. I even sold a couple of articles to a national magazine years ago. But I wasn't quite confident enough to believe that I, that I was really that good. I mean, I have such a respect for the printed word. I was always a little scared of the idea of putting my words out there for people to react to. I mean, I wasn't, I wasn't willing to risk the potential bad feedback. You know, what if I'm not as good as people say I am? And the people who were saying that were people who knew me. So, time passes. I end up on the board of a senior citizen's lunch program, Helderberg Senior Services. And we're having a board meeting and talking about getting the lunch program started and saying, well, how are we going to let people know that we're doing this? And I said, well, gee, I've done public relations for the Red Cross. I can write a press release. You know, that's fairly easy. Um, I'm sure if I call the paper, they would agree to put in the menu for next week's senior lunch. You know, that's community news. And I called the editor of the paper, you, Melissa, and of course you did say, well, yes, sure, we'd be glad to put the senior lunch menu into the paper. And and we did that for several weeks, and, and then I would start putting in a few things about the Hilltown Seniors' upcoming trips or the shopping bus. And then there came a week when there just wasn't anything going on. And I thought, well, yeah, I could just put in the menu, but that's boring. Um, there, there ought to be a little more meat to it. So I just essentially ran off at the mouth for three or four hundred words and submitted it to the paper and got a call from the editor. The editor of the paper... I mean, a professional writer, someone who has spent her career writing and judging writing, who said, I loved what you wrote. You loved what I wrote? I get, I get goosebumps. I mean, even now, thinking about it, you mean, you mean I, I'm, I'm really okay as a writer? Wow. And that was the beginning. You were the one that gave me enough confidence to then try it again and write something else. And, and then maybe to, to vary what I wrote about. I could write about silly things that amused me or... I could write about more serious things, questions that wander through my mind, like, like why don't we speak cat? Um, 
or who who is the devil's advocate actually and each thing i wrote got got positive feedback and and you're the reason I'm a writer. Oh my goodness. Well, I think we're very lucky to have you because not only do you do practical things for the seniors and others that read our paper, like financial interviewing people, really kind of news, uh, but you also do these incredibly personal um, essays that are, I find, riveting. So what kind of, you said you've gotten feedback, What, what kind of people do you hear from and what do they say? Generally, it's people that I that I meet around the community in Bern, um, you know, who who will hear my name at a meeting or something and say, "Are you the one that writes that column? I love what you write," um, which which reinforces what my editor told me. Um, I'm thinking. Actually, I may I may ask my editor to put my email um, it somewhere yeah, in at the I, end of my column, so that if somebody wants to contact me directly and and complain about something or give me an idea or send me a question, that they would be able to do that directly. I had never thought of it until very, very recently. Yeah, that might be a good idea. It's something we'll have to talk about doing for other reporters as well. So (laughs) I'm afraid our half hour went really fast. Is there anything essential you want people to know about yourself for your work that we haven't touched on? Whatever you can do, it is absolutely essential that you do it. Because whether you know it or not, what you do makes a difference. Brilliant. Thank you, Phyllis.